Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufer, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Anwar Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I'm Adam Wilder, and today we have, as always, a great guest. Of course, I'm talking about Dr. Vahid Majidi, who is the director of the Savannah River National Laboratory. And if you recall past episodes, we've talked to directors at Los Alamos, and we've talked to the director of Kansas City National Security Complex, and we've talked to senior leaders at the other labs, but we've never had a detailed discussion about what Savannah River does. And if you're like me, you want to know more about Savannah River. And so fortunately, you know, Vahid and I have known each other for quite some time, and I asked him, Vahid, you got to come on. You got to tell us about Savannah River. People just want to know. With that, Vahid, welcome to NucleCast. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate you singling me out for this uh, for this <laughs> interview on podcast. Uh, Savannah River is one of those gems in the Department of Energy complex that often uh, misunderstood. But we do some really amazing work here, and I think uh, uh, after today, your listeners will be uh, really. Uh, impressed by the quality and the quantity of work that's actually done at Savannah River site. So start us off by sort of laying out the history of Savannah River and where Savannah River sits within the DOE laboratory complex. Sure. Adam, you know, Savannah River site was established in 1951. So uh, if you go back all the way to Manhattan Project, Manhattan Project was healthy and thriving. And uh, right after the Russians did their first nuclear testing, uh, that's when uh, our country decided that we need to have additional capacity for building nuclear weapons and nuclear materials. So Savannah River uh, site was selected and uh, the construction was started in 1951, the singular purpose of the site was to produce nuclear material. Uh, It was predominantly focused on plutonium and tritium. So plutonium being the key uh, element for uh, the primary nuclear weapons, you know, the the active material, and tritium uh, being that unique element that converts nuclear weapons to thermonuclear weapons. So those are the weapons with really substantial yields. So those materials were designed, and in fact, today, roughly about a third of the plutonium in the stockpile comes from Savannah Riverside. Uh, That process continued. Uh, One of the uh, key features of Savannah Riverside was a number of reactors that produced plutonium. Uh, It was uh, capability Uh, to separate heavy water for some of those reactors, and then ultimately producing tritium uh, was another capability. Of course, uh, right 
post-Cold War, uh, as we looked at our complex and looked at the capabilities, Savannah Riverside mission changed as well. Uh, fundamentally, uh, DuPont was the main contractor that operated Savannah Riverside for a number of years. And uh, as the time came for a Cold War transition, obviously DuPont left and uh, the site kind of shifted in a different management model. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that. So uh, DuPont, one of the fundamental uh, principles of operations was that they were really forward looking. So as we were generating waste, what we call today as a legacy waste for Cold War, DuPont was very much aware of this uh, substantial amount of waste being generated. And before uh, the Cold War ended, DuPont had already started a number of different processes looking at this waste, potential pathways for it. So before Department of Energy really had an environmental management organization to look after the legacy waste, at Savannah Riverside, we were already anticipating that this is going to be an issue and we had made many investments in different approaches looking at this. So uh, after the Cold War, the site, Savannah River site changed its mission and it became an environmental management site, predominantly focusing on cleaning up the legacy waste. Meanwhile, we never lost the tritium mission. So this is the singular site in the complex that still puts tritium into the gas transfer system uh, for the nuclear deterrence. Of course, as with any other story that we have in the Department of Energy complexes, no one thing is done in any one site. Tritium is a, is a long history. Uh, the uh, Pacific Northwest has an element in designing the TP bar. These are tritium production bars for uh, uh, producing tritium, that goes into uh, TVA for production of tritium, then it comes to the Savannah River site. We extract that tritium uh, and purify it and ultimately put it in the gas transfer system that goes into nuclear deterrence. Now, today, Savannah River National Laboratory is an independent national laboratory. Uh, and in this site, originally we were a part of DuPont so everything was under one organization. But today, as the lab is an independent entity, uh, there is other contractors on the site that they do other specific activities. So my sister organization is Savannah River Nuclear Solutions. Uh, they are the site management and operation contractors. They're responsible for maintaining the sites for EM, but also they have a responsibility for doing things like running the Tritium Enterprise Facility. That's the facility that actually extracts tritium from that tritium production bars. And we help them with some of the technologies, some of the chemistries that involved in purifying the tritium and ultimately making it into the gas transfer bottles. Beside us and Savannah River Nuclear Solutions, there are other contractors on sites that focus on environmental cleanups. These are things like, how do you deal with the disposition of the waste in the tank? farm, uh, still with some nuclear material processing like H Canyon. So there's, it's a very vibrant site 
with lots of concurrent activities with a lots of concurrent contractors doing their job very well. Let me ask you, some of our listeners may not be familiar with tritium. So can you, can you give us a little bit of a, you know, a chemistry lesson and, and just tell us, you know, what is tritium? What does it do? And why is it important? Yeah, the great thing uh, as a chemist is the appreciation that uh, we talk about tritium, but really we're talking about hydrogen. So uh, hydrogen, uh, if uh, for, for those uh, uh, who are interested in chemistry, is the first element in the periodic table. Uh, is the element, the most abundant element in the universe, and what powers our sun. So when we bask in the glow of sun and enjoy that radiant energy, it's the hydrogen that provides that energy. Well, hydrogen actually has uh, two other isotopes. These are two, uh, two family members from hydrogen family that are slightly different, not in their chemical nature, but they're in their nuclear nature. So I won't get too much in the weed at them, but hydrogen has a sister isotope, it's deuterium. Deuterium is a little bit more heavier than hydrogen. And then we have tritium, which tritium is a bit heavier than deuterium. So I won't talk about neutrons and protons and all of that stuff. Just remember, hydrogen is the lightest isotopes, then you get deuterium, and then you get tritium. Well, if you go back all the way to Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, every time nuclei gain or lose mass, it produces a lot of energy. So the way we get a lot of energy by plutonium is that we make sure that plutonium nuclei falls apart or goes through a fission process, and that generates energy. Another way you can generate energy is by taking light nuclei, like tritium, and force them together. And that also releases a lot of energy. The, the, the amazing fact about tritium is that when you combine it in nuclear weapon, it just releases a tremendous amount of energy that creates high yield weapons that are relatively small for the amount of energy that they produce. Now, Adam, if I may just continue on the very positive aspect of tritium that we work every day. I'm sure you're your, your listeners have heard about all the progress that's going on in the fusion front in the Department of Energy. ITER program in France is going forward with the design of a tokamak system that's going to create more energy from fusion. Livermore just made an announcement this December that they passed the breakthrough energy. And what they're able to do is that they're able to squeeze tritium hard enough and get energy out of it, that the amount of energy you get out is more than the amount of energy you put in. And Savannah River National Laboratory being one of the long-term players in a tritium game, we are one of the only facilities in the world that is focused on tritium fuel cycle. So we work with all the energy fusion uh, laboratories and companies and venture capitalists that have an interest in this area and we are designing various types of exhaust system and recycling for their fusion machines. So one of the key 
aspects of our research is also how do you harness tritium for energy uh, in the, on the grid or just energy applications at large. Hmm. Yeah. And so I think you were explaining that in Savannah River, there's the lab portion and then there's the production portion. Can you go into a little more detail about what exactly does that mean and why sure. is it structured that way? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, I, I would say it, it's not uh, intentionally structured that way. It's a structure that has evolved over time. Uh, initially, uh, everything was being run by DuPont, and we were very focused on uh, two things, make plutonium and make tritium, right? That was, the, uh, that was a singular mission of the site. And as we went through the Cold War, then and clean the environment and still make sure we get tritium out. Uh, and uh, beyond Cold War, uh, as the site evolved, the laboratory became a multi-mission national laboratory. That means beyond just focusing on plutonium and tritium, we have a lot of other missions uh, ingrained in our everyday work that involves uh, environmental cleanup, it involves national security in all forms, it involves clean and secure energy, and obviously uh, it involves uh, uh, being a part of the nuclear deterrence program. So the portion of the site that focused on production uh, remains the same. What has happened is that the laboratory spun off from that portion and became independent because initially when the site was focused on EM, it was thought as a, uh, a mission with sunset. Once we're done with the cleanup, we're gonna close down Savannah River site. Well, today that's really no, uh, that is not the vision for the site today. The, the current sponsor for the site is the Environmental Management Organization of the DOE headquarters. That sponsorship is changing next year. And NNSA is taking ownership of the site and they're becoming the sponsor. So the site is transitioning from an environmental management site to a national security site. And the reason it's becoming a national security site is because we are heavily involved in deterrence through the Tritium program and through a recent decision by NNSA, recent in the past few years, the plutonium production, a part of the plutonium production program comes back to Savannah Riverside to focus on pit production. So separation of tritium and putting them in the gas transfer systems along with plutonium processing fall under the site MNO, which is Savannah River Nuclear Solutions, along with some of the other MNO activities. The research and development on technology readiness and developing uh, analytical approaches for material science and characterizations remain within the laboratory. That's why we're doing the stockpiled stewardship portion of gas transfer, gas transfer system, because all of that involves a lot of deep research into materials. So one of the big questions, and I, you know, this is sort of separate from the work that you do running the, the actual lab, 
mm-hmm. and and there's been a lot of discussion, particularly you know the the report just came out from the on the military developments of China, and mm-hmm. so now you know it's we we think they've already doubled their stockpile. They're going to quadruple it within the next five years. The Russians are, you know, we think they're probably breaking out of New START. The Strategic Posture Commission has said, hey, we need to grow our arsenal. We absolutely have Mm -hmm. to. But one of the big challenges we've seen is, you know, we're behind schedule on the development of the facilities to build new pits. That, and even if we can build the 80 pits per year, there's a chance that might not be enough for the strategic environment where we may find ourselves in in five or 10 years. And so you being on the ground in Savannah and you sort of being really close to all of this, what's your take on whether we would be able to kind of build the the pits? Can we separate enough tritium? Can we do these things and can we ramp up most importantly, if there's a requirement, if the breakout, if, you know, the Chinese become aggressive, if the Russians expand, can we do the things we need to do to counter them if required? Yeah. So, Adam, you know, uh, I'm going to go back to Cold War. Uh, sorry, I'm going to go to Manhattan Projects. I'm telling you from a, a scientific, enthusiastic approach that we took with Manhattan Project, we went into it with very little scientific and technical knowledge of materials, of the interrelated systems that go together, the diversity of workforce that you need together. And then in a very short time, we were able to produce two unique scientific devices that did things we've never done before. So I know from the human aspects, all of that is possible. What what really creates a challenge for us is an environment that we're limited by budgetary constraint. We are limited by uh, long-term dedications to mission priority. And we we have a shift in interest uh, from time to time. So regardless of AD pits, I'm confident that if our nation is put in a position that we need to do unique things for our country, we can certainly deliver on that. Now, uh, scientific discovery and production are two different things. Production works very well by milestones. Scientific discovery, not so much. So if you're worried about the current schedule in production, I I can tell you uh, those are, are always concerned for us as well. And we have to be realistic about what's possible and what's not possible. I'm looking at the, the current announcements by uh, both SRNS and uh, NNSA, and, and they're talking about the building readiness of uh, roughly about uh, early 2030s, you know, somewhere in 2030s. But building readiness and having a pit production capacity are two different things. Uh, as uh, I'm sure you have talked to Tom Mason, and he can tell you, uh, if it was easy. Everybody would do it. The reason <laughs> it takes so much focus and uh, effort in both technical uh, as well as uh, engineering challenges is that it is not a simple problem. So it's not going to be uh, we have a building and next year we're going to have 
uh, our brand new pit producing facility is that it takes time for that building to reach a level of production that's going to the, meet the national needs. I'm confident that if we get to a 50 pit at SRPPF, we can expand that capability if the need arises. We can certainly expand the capability for tritium production in our nation if the need arises. But it has to be a national imperative for us to go through those upside curve. And the current schedule is designed for a baseline level. And uh, post 2030s, once the building is ready, we have to really look at the processes and make sure that we have the most efficient processes in pit production facilities to routinely put out 50 pits. That's not gonna be the year after that. And that has to, again, I'm not going to talk for my, my, for my uh, con contractor brethren, that's really up to them to come up with a date. But I can tell you, having worked at PF4, it's challenging working on plutonium and it's challenging producing pits. And I'm glad it's a hard problem because if it was easy, yeah. everybody would be doing it. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly true. So has Savannah River seen, because we don't really hear, we, we, you know, we often hear most about the actual weapons design labs. They're sort yeah. of, you know, they, they get all the, you know, all the media attention. But is has Savannah River seen the dramatic expansion in the number of, employees has it been having the trouble finding the talent that others have been having so where do you sort of stand in in sort of these these sort of broader issues that other doe labs and manufacturing facilities have been facing yeah we've got actually two sets of problem you know that there's a growth both in the laboratory and the site uh just three years ago the site was about ten thousand. 500 and then you know as recent as year and a half ago we were sitting at 11,000 i know savannah river nuclear solutions need to hire a significant number of employees and at the laboratory uh we grew roughly about 20 percent over the past year and a half and we're on a trajectory to grow uh, another uh, 20 or 30 percent over the next two years of course, we're not as big as Los Alamos, so the numbers uh, are much smaller, but the proportions are roughly about the same. But one of the fundamental advantages that we have at the Savannah River site, we are in South Carolina, Aiken, South Carolina, uh, right at the border of Georgia. Our sister city is Augusta, Georgia. So we're in a central Savannah River site that has roughly a population of about a one point some million populate, populations. But most importantly, we enjoy being very near uh, Clemson University, South University of South Carolina, South Carolina State, University of Georgia, uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. We are very near North Carolina and all of their fantastic schools. We're only a few hour drives from Florida with their great schools. Alabama is an area we recruit heavily from. Texas. So we are centrally located amongst a large number of universities and industries that are very amenable for recruiting technical and scientific personnel that can help us in all areas. Mm -hmm. So 
in earnest, we have had the least amount of trouble finding highly qualified candidates. Moreover, we're in a portion of the country that the cost of livings are not exorbitant. So as we, you know, as we compete with individuals in, let's say, California or New Mexico, depending on where they are, uh, the cost of living may be significantly different. So the starting salaries have to be much higher. So there is a balance that goes that really tilts in favor of the Sedona Riverside for workforce development. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Now we're at that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob. Um, you've never met Bob, but Bob is my genie. And if I rub my magic lamp, Bob pops out and he grants all guests three wishes. But they've got to be about the topics we've been discussing. So no world peace, no wealth, only topics we're discussing. And Bob wants to give you three wishes, Vahid. So what would those three wishes be? Well, you know, I'd like to thank Bob for already granting <laughs> two of my wishes. Uh, you know, when I started at uh, Savannah River National Laboratory, one of the uh, fundamental projects I worked with the department was that the Department of Energy realized the laboratory was a relevant and enduring entity at the site, and they decided that they were going to spin it off as an independent national laboratory. And over the past few years, the department, through a number of very complex uh, processes, ultimately developed a contract and uh, put it out for bid. And uh, Batal Savannah River Alliance, which is uh, uh, a, a company composed of Batal, Georgia Tech, University of Georgia, Clemson, University of South Carolina, and South Carolina State University, won that contract to run the laboratory. So we are infusing uh, a tremendous history of the TALS management of national laboratory, plus all of our regional universities that really gives us unlimited potential for expansion into technical fields. So I'm really proud of that. And I'm grateful for both our university partnerships and Batal's oversight. And the fact that we're independent is really a, a, a vision of Department of Energy's come to fruition. So thank you to the Department of Energy for having the foresight and spinning us off. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I was really hoping to, uh, to be able to steadily grow the laboratory uh, in a multi-program fashion to be a significant player in things like fusion research. Even though we don't do fusion at the laboratory, the fuel cycle that we establish for fusion is essential to any working fusion machine. So automatically makes us relevant to the rest of the community. So that leading edge science, that is something that is progressing at the laboratory and you're going to see amazing things come out of this laboratory over the next decade, be it in clean energy, be it in fusion energy, be it in materials or other national security applications. So you'll see all of that coming. Now, if I if I had to ask my third wish, it's going to be very topical. I 
really wish for uh, a budget this year so we can continue our good progress without interruption. Uh, it's sometimes, I think, missed uh, that uh, when Washington, D.C. Uh, has these little uh, uh, consternations about passing a budget, that it only has a local effect. I'm here to tell you, Adam, that this budget issues really have a national effect on any entity that receives federal dollar to do great work for our nations. And our laboratory, like other national laboratories, we are what's known as FFRDC, Federally Funded Research and Development Center. It's a congressional designation that obligate us to do public good. So anytime that there is a lapse in funding, our ability to do the best for U.S. citizens and ultimately do public good is limited. So uh, if you can make that third wish a budget resolution, I certainly will appreciate that. Well, Bob is in the wish-granting business, so we'll see how good he is this year. Uh, so I, I did have one question. So you mentioned that Savannah River was under DOE environmental management, and it's going to be transferred to NNSA. And so that sort of sparked a question in my mind in the sense that was Savannah River sort of slated to follow the path of Rocky Flats? Is that sort of the direction it was going to go? Or yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, so long time ago, that was really the, the, the plan. It was a closure mission. But uh, I think uh, it, was, it was not necessarily well-known or considered that we're still actively involved in, de in the deterrence picture by, by the virtue of being the tritium site. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things you realize when you come here, you clearly see it's palpable seeing the footprint you need to have to be a tritium site. So it's not like, hey, we can pick it off of Savannah Riverside and plop it somewhere else because yeah. the infrastructure and the, the, the site size itself are very relevant to this picture. So I think that became a recognition uh, within the department. And ultimately, it was decided that, you know, the volume of NNSA work has sufficiently exceeded the volume of work that's being done by environmental management. So it makes perfect sense for the site transition from EM to NNSA. Yeah, and that should be really good for you. I would think that would that would help Savannah River significantly. So, so Adam, I want to make sure that you forward this podcast to all my NNSA <laughs> uh, program managers so that they realize we're still grateful for their support through all of these transitions. And of course, uh, my my sponsor uh, program, Environmental Management, it, it was their vision that really spun the laboratory out into its independent form to be an enduring capability, regardless of the EM mission on site here. So as we end the show, what what do you want to leave for our listeners as sort of their takeaway to keep in mind whenever they think about or hear about Savannah River? So uh, if, I, if I may, Adam, two things. Number one, we are not in Savannah. Uh, the number of visitors that actually end up in Savannah <laughs> and then calling us saying, hey, where are you guys? We're a few hours north of Savannah. So uh, 
I really like to uh, have your listeners and viewers uh, keep a tab on Savannah River site, moreover on Savannah River National Laboratory, and look at us over the next five-year period. Savannah River National Laboratory is one of the only laboratories in the complex that has the potential for the largest growth in a number of different scientific and technical areas. Uh, simply, it's a confluence of events and confluence of uh, expertise that have come together to make this place very unique and very special. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the site myself over the next five years, and we're going to hopefully see amazing things happening. Now, obviously, pit production is always an elephant in a room, and we just have to let that pro pro progress to proceed based on its own uh, uh, paces. Uh, we at the laboratory really don't have any hands-on activities involving pit production. That's all in Savannah River Nuclear Solutions. But we are a huge supporter of that activity and a huge supporter and a fan of the site as a whole. This is the right place for it to do it. And we're looking forward seeing everybody to be successful on site here. All right, Dr. Vahid Majidi, Director of the Savannah River National Laboratory. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Thank you very much, Nuclecast. Adam. I appreciate your time. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode. And we'll see you next time. I don't know about you, but I was glad to have Vahid on Nuclecast because Savannah River, you know, I, I've always known it was there. And I've sort of, I knew, you know, it, it had this... Uh, PF4 facility, and I knew they did, you know, they, you know, filled uh, the bottles in the gas transfer systems. You know, I sort of knew basic stuff about it, but I didn't really know that much about it. So having Vahid on to talk about uh, Savannah River and what it does and how it's doing and its growth and pit production, those were all really good topics to discuss. So I, I'm I'm glad Vahid was on. And I'm glad he sort of gave us that history and that, you know, present and future look. And hopefully you enjoyed his interview as well. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrent Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chamberlain, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpel. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclear